and ask God's favor for what we're going to cover this morning. Lord, I love you and I thank you. And I ask that by grace, you teach us your love and you teach us to fight what you would fight for, to not sit at the table that your son would flip over and that we would take seriously our call to be light of the world, salt of the earth. Lord, thank you for grace for all of us. And I ask that uh, we, would, we would not be patient with ourselves in our sin and hard on others and theirs, but that we would see it all the same and that we would, um, we would truly love you and love people. Uh, thank you for faith, hope, and love. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's dig in. This is going to be a challenge and excited. Here's a little encouragement. His name is Gui, Guillaume Vino, French atheist who converted to Christ. I want you to see that cover. You can buy the book. You can watch videos on this guy. It is worth it. I want you to know not everybody's deconstructing, all right? There are atheists who were repulsed by, refuse to consider faith, that are converting to Jesus Christ. You should hear this guy's story. It is absolutely amazing. Uh, Brilliant man, uh, studied um, physics and all kinds of mathematics. I'm telling you, he's got that empirical scientific brain. And, you know, the fact that you can't put God in a test tube, that kind of a situation. And yet he turns to the Lord Jesus Christ. Beautiful story. So be encouraged by confessions of a French atheist. Uh, Kids, if you want to draw something, uh, I I gave you a copy of some Greek. All right. I want you to try to draw an ancient Greek manuscript. And you've got some letters there that you can work on. Maybe Caroline Isaiah or something or some of those four kids, if you want to, to try to draw an ancient Greek manuscript. That'd be really, really good to see what you guys do. All right, pop quiz. What does the word apologetic mean? What's that? A defense of our faith. Okay, break the word down. What's that, Sabrina? Apologos, to speak out of logic, to speak from logic, to be well-reasoned. To argue well. Yeah, what about proof? Ginamai, dokimazo. To prove something, sure. To test it, to examine it, to demonstrate it's genuine or real. Absolutely. So that's what we're going to do our best to do. So um, let's work on this here. We, we challenge, I challenge you with a couple questions. Got a new one for today. Last Sunday was, is it possible to empirically prove the existence of God? Can you prove that God exists? I say no. I don't think you can. Because God is spirit. He's immaterial. You can't get him inside the test tube empirically. But I do believe that you can empirically prove the evidence that he exists. I do believe that. In other words, the sunrise. You can measure that. Those kinds of things. So here's my next question. What distinguishes our Bible, the Old and New Testament, What distinguishes it? What makes it special in comparison to the great writings of the world religions? (laughs) Okay. Um, I hear you and and your your humor, but I I bet there's others that complain too. (laughs) What do you think? What makes ours special? 
Or does it? Is is living proof and it, it has uh, miracle results? Yeah, yeah. That's good, Tony. And yet, I'm positive that I could find a Muslim who would say the same thing about the Quran. Yeah. Oh, Allah has done this, and Allah has done that, and yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, David? It's a, it just people try to disprove it all the time. They try to, they try to disprove yeah. it, say it's not quite, it's not correct. So what, but, okay. Prophecies. Prophecies? Prophecies okay, good. There is no other, okay. there is no other religion that has prophetic uh, okay. reporting it that is constitutional. Okay. Okay. Ah, how do you measure that? Well, you, yeah, you can't, right? Because they'll say the same thing. This is the anointed book. This is it. This is the Bhagavad Gita. Oh, they're so anointed. Okay, manuscript evidence. Okay, now that's something more measurable. Okay, that's good. Anybody else? What makes our scripture special? Interesting, yeah. Somebody else? Uh, Jake? It is the only book in religion where you can actually prove the existence of the prophet. Of a prophet, like the prophet Isaiah? Okay. Okay, that's actually good because they're, uh, that's called a corroboration or an external uh, testimony. Yeah, that's actually good, Jake. Thank you. It's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. I, if there ever was a good time to say Jesus, it was right then. Because it's interesting, Justin is, he bypassed a whole lot of stuff to get to something very unique, this historical figure named Jesus. Yeah. So that's super good. Anything else? Is it the uh, only one that claims to be divinely inspired within its... Absolutely no. Not at all. No. No. Well, both the Old Testament and the New Testament point to Sure. Yep. Yep. Anything else? By the way, do you know what? Have you heard of a tautology an argument? Remember, we're doing apologetics, apa, logos, from logic. A tautology is a circular argument. It's a dog chasing his tail. So it's going to be something like this. Well, I know this is the word of God. Do you know why, Joe? Because it says it's the word of God. <laughs> Duh. Well, that's called a tautology. It's a circular argument. They're going to say the same thing. So, so what's special about our, our book versus theirs? Joe? This is the most important question that Christians today should be asking themselves. Either you have just another flavor of self-help, or you have the only one that's actually divine. Okay. If we can't answer this question, it's a difficult proposition that we should be out evangelizing. In my opinion, what separates ours from everybody else's is that Salvation is lifted from the responsibility of the individual. It's put on somebody who's already done it. So what yeah. man does in Christianity is what God has done. In my understanding, a lot of religions, and a lot of times in the way we teach Christianity, unfortunately, it more depends on what the man's doing and less on what the, the divine, whoever it is, will forgive you if you get to a certain point of holiness. Right. Right. And if you don't, you're, then you're, you know, you suffer whatever punishment. And right. Unfortunately, we teach Christianity like that too, instead of what it really is, and that yeah. you're either irrevocably saved or irrevocably lost. And you are irrevocably saved because the work has been done. Yes, in Christ. 
Anyone is in Christ. Someone else, I think it was Jay or... Uh, uh, yes. Cole? Okay, corroboration. Has archaeological research verified facts about the Bible? So that's good. Yeah. Um, yes, Emma. Uh, Justin, Trinity, that makes us unique. Yeah, now you get into Hinduism, Buddhism, uh, the Egyptian, pen, I mean, they've got this plethora like Hindus do in Egypt, like Ra, for example. Um, yeah, I, th- that, I think this is unique. Emma, was it um, Je- uh, Bruce and Janice? I want to say Janice. Did you raise your hand, Janice? No. Okay. Uh, Maddie, I'm sorry. I, I, I'm close. Uh, I was just going to say, isn't ours the only one uh, with a God that would give himself for sinful I think that's actually very insightful that uh, uh, our, our king dies for us instead of, you know, the king demanding that we die for him. So really interesting. Yep, that's really insightful, Maddie. That's good. Anybody, Cole? Uh, the amount of authors over such a length of time without a contradiction. Yeah, that's insightful, but uh, problematic because the rest of the stories are similar for the rest of the people. Um, yeah, and we'll look at it in just a second. Anybody else on why the Old or New Testament, our Christian scriptures are unique, special uh, in comparison to, to those? Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. However, the Muslims would claim perhaps even greater an argument there because of what they would say the great slaughter during the Crusades, where they felt there were being persecuted by Christians. But your point well made, though, Philip. Uh, yes, Alan. What's that, sir? Well, some do. There are there are creation stories in some of the ancient writings, Mesopotamia, Egypt, those things. So. Um, yes. Remind me of your name. Cody. Cody. All right. Yeah, so um, it may have been said in different ways before, but uh, Christianity is the only one that's not by works, but by faith. Yeah. And so because yeah. I'm looking at every single one and I've relatively studied most of those and all of them are like, do this and then you get to heaven. And sure. Christianity sure. is the only one that says Jesus did this and it's by faith yeah. that you go to heaven. Does anybody here know how to convert to Islam? What do you do to convert to Islam? You just say, Allah is God and his son Muhammad is the prophet. You just convert him. That's it. So they too can have a faith component, Cody, but, but you're right. By the way, quick commercial, commercial break, really 30 seconds. Ladies and gentlemen, guess what? Cody is a singer-songwriter, and he and his guys are putting together a song. They were started recording last night. All right, and it's a Christian song, biblically based. They wanted to get that out, and they've already made a de- determination that proceeds are going to go to uh, Sound of Freedom Like Causes, and, which is beautiful. So, Cody, thank you for doing that as, as uh, a testimony. So, Kathy? Interesting. Now we're getting back to Jesus. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Can we see just a little bit how difficult it is to argue that our, our, our book is better than their book? You know, 
I'm talking about measurably, because do you realize they, they can, there can be some uh, uh, Taoist who is saying the very same things about me and, and, and my book right now, you know, in their little church. So, so here's what I want to do. And in this reconstructing effort, what we're doing is we're trying to really settle up on are there historical, measurable facts that we need to consider that really do set our, our book apart? Is there anything? If there's nothing, all right, Jesus is still Lord. It's not like it all collapses. But is, you know, are there some things that we need to pay attention to? So we're talking about the question of the historical reliability of the New Testament specifically, all right? Now, from last Sunday, remember, we can't get God inside a test tube. Can't do it. He's immeasurable. He's spirit. Can't do it. But you can measure the evidence of God's creative design. Uh, You can measure the evidence of Jesus, the evidence of the New Testament, and the evidence of those, the faith of those who follow. I think Philip said the martyrs. That's measurable. You can actually look at that. All right. So, but today we're going to focus specifically on evidence of the New Testament. So... Let's talk about the criteria of a Greek New Testament. How are you going to, what apparatus are you going to work through? Ah, that's an old manuscript. Or no, 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 that's really, really recent. So the first thing is the criterion of dissimilarity. When, you know, for example, if there's a text in the scriptures where Jesus is speaking in opposition to the Pharisees, to Judaism, and it creates tension, like he's, he's confronting something, he's pulling away from something, he's being deviant. That's the criterion of dissimilarity. It's not heavily harmonized where it's all going to come together and fit really well in this nice, clean package. The criterion of embarrassment. Um, do you remember the story where Jesus gets baptized? Who should be baptizing who? So Jesus baptized John. So John, some guy, hairy guy that eats bugs is in a camel girdle or whatever he's wearing is going to baptize Jesus. That's a little embarrassing, you know. What about the number one dude in Jesus' youth group? This guy's amazing. He's doing miracles. Oh, by the way, walking on water. <laughs> Anybody done that one? And guess what he does? Denies him when he eats on. That's embarrassing. So there's, there's, there's data in the manuscripts that are embarrassing if Jesus is this lofty figure. His followers are compromising. Who would include those shameful stories? That's an embarrassment component. Multiple attestation. We're talking about Mark corroborates it, Matthew does, John does, Luke does, and then external multiple. There's, there's folks on the outside talking about this stuff who are not Christians. Okay, That's important. Cultural historical congruency. If, if you read, if someone says to you, this is going to sound silly, bear with me. Um, if someone said to you that, well, you know, I just came across this new manuscript. I found it online and I Googled it. And it says uh, that Jesus and his disciples, uh, they rode Honda motorcycles. It was amazing. Um, is that cultural historical congruency? Why? They didn't have them back then. So if, if Jesus, if, if the writings of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are writing about things that match up with the culture, do you understand that that can help with dating that manuscript? 
But if they're talking about things that had nothing to do with that culture, then it's going to create uh, a lot of doubt about it. Aramaisms, Jesus, his actual native language, uh, a, a subset of Hebrew. Can you pick up on an Aramaism? If you do, that's going to point to it being a very authentic document. And then, of course, autopsia, eyewitness testimony. So if you get a Greek manuscript and it can pass that test, wow, that's pretty serious. Okay, it's very important. All right, let's look at some manuscript evidence. Um, what you're seeing are, this is a, a real simple chart of what is available in Greek manuscripts and some Latin manuscripts on some of the most ancient writing that we have, all right? Um, for example, uh, Pliny, his writings, he wrote around 61 to 113 AD. The earliest copy of what Pliny wrote is 850. Okay, so you've got a difference of around 750 plus years of time before the first copy appears. You've got about seven copies. That's it. Okay. And you can see as it goes down that there's more copies. So regarding the work of uh, Plato in his tetralogies, his, his collection of threes, um, there's almost 200. Okay. Regarding Homer... Uh, and they, by the way, they found more manuscripts of Homer, uh, 2,000 plus, 2,000 plus, with a 500-year gap between the earliest copies that we have and the original dating of the Iliad. Do you understand? Okay, watch this. The New Testament. 5,800 Greek manuscripts right now. And there's some discrepancies. There's, there's a variety of approaches scholars take with the fragments, etc. cetera. Uh, some argue for a little higher than that. Some argue that it's in like a flat 5,600. But uh, I'm, I'm giving you an approximation of 5,800 Greek manuscripts of whole letters or fragments of letters of the Greek New Testament more than any other ancient document. All right, now, if you add the complementary manuscripts uh, written in Coptic and Latin and other languages that all support this and are all dated to the very same time period or centuries later, 20 plus thousand manuscripts. So in terms of documenting ancient source information, the New Testament that you have in your lap or on your phone is one of the most documented uh, writings of all times. Okay. Now, if you, for the moment, can set aside your faith, set aside Christian presupposition, Christian core belief, uh, all those things, and you just look at the evidence, get it, get it under their microscope, push all the faith and belief aside, just look at the numbers, what does it tell you about the New Testament? What does it say? What is unique about our New Testament? It's really well documented, right? It's also widespread based off the travel of Paul and other people. Very widespread. Yep, yep, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, anything else? There wasn't as much time between the date and the office. Yes, yes. And that's very important. Okay. Um, have you noticed 
uh, in your research and writing. Uh, I know the little dabbling that I have done in that. You know, you create a first draft, right? And then you go back to your second draft and your third draft. And if you're like me, on draft number 87, you might start feeling good about it. It's just constantly refining it and refining it. And, and it, it's just mind-bending sometimes how we think we have to refine things down. Do you realize that when you, if, if, the doc, if the copies of the originals didn't show up until about a thousand years later, what would they be like? Be logical. Okay. If these Christians had a thousand years, 1,500 years since the events, and they had time for it to really distill in their minds and churches and denominational things started to form after a thousand plus years. And they were going to write down Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. What would they probably what would those documents probably look like? They wouldn't be relevant, really. Okay, lack of relevency, but what else? They were saying based off of opinions and beliefs and things like that, just like you need a witness statement and Absolutely. You nailed it. Yep. Yep. Absolutely, Michael, you're getting at it. Absolutely. If, a, if 500 years, 1,000 years go by and nobody's written anything, then all of a sudden we're going to start writing this down. The, uh, oh my goodness, it's going to be crazy. Um, by the way, the criteria that I, I presented a, a bit ago, if you look at what's called the apocryphal gospels, the apocrypha, the apocryphal gospels, they talk about crazy stuff that, that you'd go like, that's, Jesus wouldn't do that. Paul wouldn't do that. John wouldn't do that. And it gets into all kinds of allegory and metaphor and all this, this spooky kind of weirdness that's out there. And so the people that developed the criteria and formed the canon said, no, that's not going to make it. That's not going to pass the test. We're not going to include that in the New Testament canon. And it's because they were written very, very late. Here, very, very late. Okay? All right. Um, everybody turn to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. And I realize that we're just kind of you know, scratching the surface here. And all those things. So what makes... The New Testament, our New Testament, different or special. Uh, all the great religions will claim that their God or their gods inspired these writings. They'll, they'll all say something like their great sage, their great teacher, their great prophet was moved by the spirit of the gods and wrote down these words. That's uh, absolutely what the... Uh, Islamist scholars would say that Muhammad was called to write down the words of Allah. Um, what is absolutely unique about the New Testament that sets it apart from all the others is that it's about Jesus. It's about this man, the uniqueness of his birth, the uniqueness of his death, the uniqueness of how he teaches, how he handles people, the types of people that he addresses, his own claims 
this is what sets the New Testament apart from all the others. Buddha never said that he is the embodiment of enlightenment and he never said that he was the image of an invisible God. In fact, Buddha said, don't believe in me at his death. Let's look at Matthew 7. I want you to turn to verse 24. Jesus has just finished teaching. And in Matthew's tradition, it's one of the most uh, most detailed collection of the sayings of Jesus. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. It's in other Gospels as well, specifically Luke. Jesus says this, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall. For it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and it fell, and its collapse was great. All right, now. When you understand the magnitude of the record of Greek and Latin manuscripts and other, uh, the same manuscripts in other forms. By the way, uh, this is interesting, quick comment, that if we lost all the Greek manuscripts that we have, okay, you could reconstruct the entire New Testament from copies in other languages. It would never be lost. Yeah, and uh, 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 Joby, you said like 99% accurate. You're, you're actually right. Some scholars will take it down to about 98. Some say 99.5% accuracy in our Greek manuscripts. Here's what. Do you know what the discrepancies are? You know what that little margin of error is? You know what it's about? Numbers. What's that? Numbers. Numbers. Somebody else? Letters. It's little spelling. Just little spelling errors. Yeah. Or maybe a word order. Yeah, in fact, at my book, you nailed it. Nothing, see, theologically, is brought into question because of discrepancies among manuscripts. Nothing. The doctrine of salvation, the doctrine of life in Christ, the doctrine of forgiveness, you can go on and on and on, of heaven and of hell. Nothing is held in question. It's just small little, little typos, you know. Can you imagine a PhD dissertation, the work that it would go into that, and then you're the editor and you find one little punctuation error? Would you say that that's a worthless PhD dissertation because of a punctuation error? You'd say, no, that would be silly. That's like you doing something silly like if we see a mistake on PowerPoint, well, that doesn't mean God exists. Deconstructed the whole thing. It was a typo. Oh, my goodness. No, no. The burden of a copyist and difficult lighting with those tools and a ruler set on a manuscript and making sure that you get it exactly right, it's okay. It's okay. 
So doctrinally, it's 100% pure, but regarding some typos, 98, 90, 99%, yeah. So when you consider the full weight of, of manuscript evidence, and when you, when you consider the full weight that the central figure of the New Testament is Jesus, and we'll get to that, we'll get to that. It's going to get so exciting. Um, you are forced with what C.S. Lewis addresses about Jesus. Uh, Josh McDowell picked up on the work of C.S. Lewis, you know, the trilemma, the quadlemma. Jesus is either a lunatic, he's literally insane, right? Or bless his heart, he's just a confused religious man, right? Maybe mental illness or something going on, stressed out, you know, had a chip on his shoulder, got in trouble with the Romans, and he was crushed on the wheel of Roman oppression, you know, something like that. You know, or he's Lord. Is he mean? Is he a liar? Is he, is he a lunatic? Is he mean, cruel? Uh, and he, he wanted to make it hard on people. Or is he Lord? You know, and as C.S. Lewis, the, one of the world's most reluctant converts, uh, and many others, they're forced with that decision. By the way, you should see what Guillaume Bion says about his conversion experience. So let's say, let's pull our faith back in. We're believers. If there was one Greek manuscript, and that's all we had, Jesus is still Lord. He still died uh, as a sacrificial lamb on the cross, and he rose from the grave. Three days later, he's still my Savior, my Lord. Even if there's one Greek manuscript, and it's a mess historically, he is still Lord. And that doesn't change anything. But let's take it now to a very personal, personal level. When you bear the full, when you bear the weight of a clear conscience that I cannot ignore what Jesus says, I can't. If I ignore what he says and choose to say, I'm smarter than he is, or I, I prefer. I know more than he knows, and, and he got that verse wrong. I don't like that one. We don't like the stuff about hell. Jesus probably got that one wrong, so let's kick that out. And you, you don't have a cut and paste, pick and choose Bible. You know, you, you can't do that with the words of Jesus. When you bear the full weight of trying to own what he says, do you understand that it sets people apart into two groups? Those who listen and act those who listen and refuse to act. And the ones who refuse will have a destroyed life. The collapse of their life will be great. Therefore, everyone who hears and acts on what I say will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. In John 10, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them, they follow me. How's that for a beautiful relationship? <laughs> they hear my voice, I know them, they follow me. It's beautiful, the shepherd-sheep relationship. All right, I want you guys to speak up. I want you to quote or do your best. What teaching of Jesus has changed your life? I am so putting you guys on the spot. What teaching of Jesus or Paul, if you want to, in the New Testament, 
has changed your life and you are building your, your life on this rock, what would it be? A New Testament passage from Jesus or Paul that you are building your life on this. What is it, Kathy? John 14, 6. Nobody gets to the Father except through me. That's so good. Someone else. John chapter 1, verse 28, verse 35. So good, yes. Somebody else. Yes, Scott. It's more of a conversation Jesus has. So there's a great multitude of people following him. And he says, I tell you the truth, unless you eat of my body, you eat my flesh and drink of my blood, you'll have no part of me. And they, they leave. And Jesus goes and looks to Peter and the other stuff, and he goes, we do not leave too. Yeah. And Peter, and this is the big thing, Peter goes, Lord, where else will we go? Are you going to the words of eternal Everybody leaves and he, he realizes that that's true. Yeah, John 6, should be verse 69. Very close to it. God said, not his son to the world, but to deal the world. And I like that one because... It's, it's no condemning or fault finding. He's just yeah. bringing his love to save us. Yeah. That's so good, Tony. Thank you for saying that. Tony, we really don't have a right to be angry at someone who sins differently than we do. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah, that's, well, Tony, you're, you're alluding to. Matthew 7, do not judge so that you will not be judged for the way you judge will be, you will be judged and by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Absolutely. What's that? Oh, Acts 10, 15. Isn't that beautiful? And aren't we, aren't we selfish and messed up people that we're going to try to prove God wrong? God, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. You know, we go down that pathetic little path. And God says, hey, what I say is clean is clean. Act like it. <laughs> Be what you are in Christ. Yeah, beautiful. Read. I think it's further in John 14, but that might not be where Jesus gives us the new commandment that we're to love yeah. others as he loves Yeah, them. yeah. That's so, so good to read, yes. I struggle with that. Yeah, thank you, Reed, for your, your transparency, because I do too, you know. I was talking with a couple, uh, by the way, quick plug for Grace Counseling Clinic. Wow, God is blessing that thing, it's amazing. I've got a couple, and it looks like they're gonna stay married, and that's good. Um, I was explaining to them, Reed, that we are very American in our approach to marriage, and very, uh, psychologized that love is a romantic thing. Love is, is sensual, it's romantic, it's deeply emotive and all these kinds of things. You know, this, the stuff of Hollywood. And what's fascinating is when you read the New Testament that describes the kind of love between a man and a woman, guess what? It's not romantic at all. It's not romantic. There's nothing in the New Testament that says, wives, put on that black dress, winky, winky, and a rose in thine teeth, and lean against the door jam, waiting for your spouse to come home. Yeah. Yeah. 
You're not going to find it. It ain't in there. <laughs> you will. What's that? I, I, I love my black churches. I love black people. I love this white people. But I, I think, I'm thinking about the Pharisees. How they was out in the opening and doing all this fancy stuff and looking all good. I'm so glad I get to come to Christ Church with my house shoes on and my blue jeans. I look at everybody. They just comfortable. I can cover it. And you still got a ratio of Christ. It's not in your dresses. Thank you, brother. We're pathetically white. I don't know if you noticed that. Dude, you're classing up the joint, okay? All right. Help us loosen up. Can you do that, please? We're a bunch of uptight white people. Do not raise your hands. Can we just do the Lord's Supper and go? (laughs) Love you, Tony. (laughs) Love you, Tony. Yeah. Read loving people is hard. Loving a spouse can be hard. Loving ourselves can be hard. Thank you. Thank you. Joe. When you read or as some of us have done, memorize life's and and it starts to go past intellectual and seeps into your and you begin to realize that Jesus is not giving us a list of rules to follow so that we stay out of hell. But he's cutting through false piety, showing you what true completeness in God looks like and most revolutionary giving us weapons to fight evil in the world. These words are these words are life. He says that's what they are. If that's true, it should produce something better than we got we had before we got hold of it. If I go out there and I apply what Christ teaches, just in the sermon alone, I shouldn't have to go anywhere else. It's kind of like the magnum opus of what it means to be a disciple. Yeah. You get things that you can take out in the world and stop evil where it stands. And we should never underestimate the power of that. Because evil left unchecked can do all kinds of horrible things. Mm. It's our job to stop it. When he's commanding you to love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you, not gripe about them and complain about them, but to pray for them... Mm. This is a revolutionary way of thinking. Every single one of those religions you put up there has pretty good internal evidence of its own existence. The Quran has never been corrupted by changing language. It's still only been done in one. So if you want to talk about textual purity, they may have us there in some degree. The faith proves itself when it's practiced according to how it was delivered. You mean you have to live it out? Yes, that's the evidence. That's the evidence. It is not, all right, man, how do you stay out of the control of torment? In this faith, well, there's that part of it. We're here to change the world and destroy evil. We're not we're not down here cowering in a building waiting for God to come around and zap Satan and make everything okay. That's our job, and He'll come back and make make it complete one day. We're supposed to be doing it now. Peter says, when you do these things, you hasten the Lord's return. We've got skin in the game. That for me is the evidence that this is divine and not just something that men have come up with. Yeah. Joe, you're, you're getting at it very, very well. In fact, um, I want to use a metaphor about a, a beautiful woman. And for you females, the metaphor of a handsome man. All right, let's do that. Uh, it's a curious thing about, again, our heavily psychologized American culture. But other cultures that are not American value beauty in certain ways and things. So when a truly handsome man that appears to be 
like an ideal physical specimen of all things masculine. You know, he's got all the looks, he's got it all, and all the muscles. And he walks into the room. What do people do with that man? What do you notice? They turn and look. When a woman is truly beautiful, she's stunning, and she's modest, and she walks in the room, what does everybody do? They turn and look. There's an old joke that women don't dress for men, they dress for other women. Because <laughs> they're competing, you know. How is it that somebody really, really good looking turns heads? Why? What's going on psychologically that we notice? Well, first of all, we're comparing. That's one thing we do. And we're, we're kind of assessing and are comparing, well, you know, he's, he's better looking than me and he's taller too, but everybody's taller and I just have to learn to accept that. And, you know, thank you for laughing. We compare. We do it, right? We do it. Joe, if there's ever a time in my lifetime, I'm 62, if there's ever been a time in my life when the bride of Christ is a good-looking woman, it could be now. It could be now. Do you know why? Because it is ugly chaos in the world. It is just chaos. Have you seen the meme? Be a real rebel. Get a job, get married, raise your kids, and love your wife. Be, be, be a rebel. Go against the grain. You know. Yeah, you, and it's, it's nuts. I mean, our society is falling apart. Have you seen the footage of San Francisco and L.A. and what used to be pristine cities flourishing? It is falling apart because of a complete uh, deconstruction of morality. And this, this version of Marxism that's, that's flooding in in socialism is destroying us. Liberalism is destroying us. And guess what it leaves in the hearts of people? It leaves them broken. It leaves them empty. It leaves them lonely. It, it, like, is this it? Is this all we got? I've got to fight with the government so I can get more money. I'm not willing to work. Or, or what? You, you get the idea. The Christianity joke can be beautiful if we lived it out, so that the gospel would make sense. It, put, let's put it in another way. The room is pitch black. There's no light. And only one person lights a candle. What does, what does everybody do to that candle? You look right at it. It's like it draws all the attention. Do you realize, Joe, you nailed it, that if we would functionally live out the Sermon on the Mount, we would be the candle in the room. And everybody is looking for the candle. They're worn out, they're tired, they're angry, they're empty, they're bitter, they're resentful, they've lost hope. And when you light a candle in that kind of darkness, that's attractive. That's attractive. But Joe, we've got to live it out. It's not just a head game. It's not just a head game. You know, one of the scriptures, Joe, that really breaks me, it's the scriptures that every word is going to be judged. Everything I say is going to be judged. And if I say, listen to this, I, I say to you, you know, you, you've heard the ancients say, thou shalt not murder. Well, I have not murdered, so I must be a righteous man. 
What does Jesus do? He takes to motive. Not external behavior, but motive. Anyone who commits murder will be answerable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be answerable to the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be answerable to the court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fire of hell. I'm beat. I may have never held a gun to someone's head and squeezed the trigger, but the countless times my heart is rotten with the motive of you good for nothing, you no count, blankety blank, you fool, has proved me to be far more guilty than if I had committed murder. Jesus gets to the core where the real problem is, gets to the core. Someone else, something in the scriptures in the New Testament that's been a rock, a foundation for you to build your life on. It's been echoed that Jesus is the, as you mentioned earlier, our faith is one that the burden is taken off of us, that we're not trying to reincarnate ourselves because we you know, get a redo. And something that you mentioned earlier, uh, in terms of being physically beautiful, I think we're looking for something emotionally beautiful as well. Yeah. But Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, according to the Old Testament. For my yoke is easy and my heart is light. So that encapsulates the heart of Jesus, wanting to take on the burden, take ownership of our lives, and be able to allow us to echo that to others. So they say, man, how do you get through this? Matthew 11 says it. It's because Jesus takes it on for us. Yeah. We that's choose to allow him to. That's, that's kind of yeah. there. We choose to allow him to yeah. take that ownership for us. Yes, that's so good, Pat. Thank you so much. Okay. All right, Christ Church. Um, you, uh, you have a calling to listen and act on the words of Jesus or to listen and choose to ignore. Um, where's my Phoebe Rose? Is Phoebe upstairs? Yeah. yeah. I think it was Friday. Um, Phoebe saw me coming. Here comes Papa. I'm like, Phoebe, you've got a choice. Downstairs, start cleaning the, the playroom, or stay upstairs in your room and work on the bedroom. What's it going to be? Guess what she did? She ignored me and she hid in the closet. <laughs> Phoebe! Phoebe! I, I know you're in there. And finally she came out and she said, what? <laughs> said, you've got a choice. Toy room, work on it. Stay in your bedroom, start cleaning. Okay, I'll get in the toy room. And then, of course, Isaiah comes down and they work on the toy room together. So, which I'm proud of you for doing that, buddy. You can hear and you can ignore. And you can come up with a million reasons to ignore. It doesn't matter. It leads to a collapse. That's horrific. So.
Um, let's just take a minute to get quiet. And I want to call you to honor God's word. I want to call you to make that decision. I, I'm going to do what Joe said. I'm going to live it out and not just cipher it out in my brain. Because Christianity is a way of life, not just something that you ascend to. It's not just data you ascend to. It's the way you live. Let's just pray quietly for just a minute. Father, we confess with Peter that you have the words of life and the flesh profits nothing. But it's your spirit, the words that give life. We hold on the promise of John 15 that if your words abide in us, we abide in you, that we are one, and that your will is done because we want what you want. Lord, help your word to abide in our hearts and to take root. No more excuses for hearing but not acting. Help us to be the people that build on the rock of your truth and your word. Thank you so much for this. In Jesus' name, amen.